0: Welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast, where we believe that no matter what you've gone through in life, God is inviting you to partner with Him to take back your story. On this podcast, we have inspiring conversations with people who are doing just that. And now, your hosts, Davey Blackburn and Aubrey Sampson.
1: Hey, welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast. I'm Aubrey.
2: And I'm Davey, and we are your hosts. Aubrey, today we have an incredible conversation with Michelle Moore. I'm really excited about diving into her story and some of the things that she's learned about it. She is the president and founder of a, an organization called Mother's Grace. It's a nonprofit that addresses the critical needs of mothers and their children in the midst of tragic life events. So I'm telling, I mean... For, for those of you guys who are listening, and yeah. this, this applies to you, I'm sure that this is a fantastic resource for you to go and mm-hmm. take a peek into and um, find out more of the stuff that she's doing. Um, I know we have a lot of you moms who are listening to this, a lot of you yeah. who experienced uh, some just really difficult things, some, some loss and some heartache. And so we want to... I know that you're going to be ministered to by this interview, but we also want to make sure that you um, get directed to what she's doing over at Mother's Grace. It's going to be... Um, It's just going to be a a great conversation for all of us.
1: If this uh, conversation meets your needs, if it inspires you, if it ministers to you in any way, if the Lord meets you through it or any of our other episodes, we would love to invite you to rate and review the Nothing Is Wasted podcast on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your stories of how God is meeting you through the podcast. And so if nothing else, share what God is doing there. And then we would love to also invite you to stick around afterwards. Davey and I are going to talk a little bit about his interview with Michelle and some of the things that we felt like um, God was showing us through Mm -hmm. that conversation.
2: Yep. So let's go ahead and dive into this conversation that I have with Michelle Moore. Michelle, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Davey. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your life right now before we jump into some of your your pain journey that you've walked through?
3: So I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am a mom of three boys, uh, 23, 20 and 17. Um, I have a new puppy named Gracie and uh, she's a a Springer Spaniel. I am a longtime business executive for a diagnostic company. It recently uh, retired after 27 years and uh, I have um, originated a charity called a mother's grace uh, that comes to you through Scottsdale, Arizona, but is national and in some cases international. Mm-hmm. And I launched a book called a mother's grace healing the world, one woman at a time in August of 2020.
2: Wow. Wow. Now this, you know, this, this organization this ministry and this book um th- there's there's a journey that's behind this you know there was an impetus behind all of this stuff because you're passionate now about helping mothers to heal helping mothers to walk in purpose um but that had to have come through some some difficult painful valleys in your own life uh for this to be something that's such a deep passion for you talk to me a little bit about that
3: yeah so um it did come out of some real severe pain points uh, starting really young at five years old. And I, I talk about that in the book, how this all started really when I was five. Uh, I lived in the Midwest. I lived in uh, South Dakota at the time. And most of my extended family lived there or in Minnesota or Indiana, um, all surrounding us. And we're just super close on both sides of the family. Um, I had young parents, about 28 years old, and a little sister, about one and a half. And uh, my mom, at the time, was a registered nurse. And she was born with a congenital heart defect and, you know, really spent her 20s serving others as a nurse um, at cardiac patients. Um, But in February of, I think it was 1971... She uh, collapsed and dropped oh. dead right in front of me oh from um, her congenital heart defect. So I was at home alone with her, uh, with my little sister, who was like on the potty seat at the time. And oh. I, we were, I was getting ready for kindergarten. And I walked into the laundry room and she was, she was laying there. And that started a really long journey. I mean, that was a horribly traumatic event. Nobody was prepared for that. Right. Family descended from all over. Um, I always describe it as a movie reel in my head. You know, first seeing her dead, and and running down the street trying to get help, and then my dad being escorted home by police, and uh, and then family just coming in, and then the funeral and the, the burial, and and then about a year and a half later, my dad remarried and uh, and and took us to Oregon, away from all of our family, which is which is second loss because my grandmother's were helping to raise me at the time. So uh, we moved halfway across the country, and I kind of began my journey grieving for my mom. It's still due in my 50s.
0: Um,
3: So I I think, and I describe this, you know, in each chapter of the book is like, you know, I'm looking for some connection. I think children are naturally attached to their mothers, both consciously and subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And um, there are guidance, there are unconditional love. And I was looking for that really my whole life. And, um, you know, I did whatever the else did. I went, you know, uh, finished school and, um, you know, went on with life and went to college. And um, during college, I met my future husband and um, prepared to get married right after college graduation. And I started having anxiety attacks, really horrible anxiety attacks. Um, and that was really the impetus of realizing that there was some huge trauma, you know, that hasn't been resolved. Right. So I did a lot of uh, counseling. And uh, then from there, uh, you know, I really went into my career. I went to graduate school and I went into my career uh, as a businesswoman in diagnostics and and started having children and And then I guess it was when my children were quite young that I started having this. Yeah, I think I'd been doing it my whole life, looking for moms that I could connect with, whether it's my friends, moms or my aunts or my grandmothers. But I really started as a businesswoman wanting to connect with these meaningful situations that really brought out emotion. I don't think I knew why I was doing it, but uh, my oldest son and I were were watching the news one day. I think he was nine or ten at the time. And we saw the unfolding of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Mm. And I'd never been to New Orleans and never had done a cleanup project, but for some reason was hugely moved. And I'm going to say now, reflecting back, it was the Holy Spirit, for us to go down and uh, help clean up. And so I took my my 10-year-old and his best friend down there several times. And we met this wonderful mother down there that was Kind of just you know an everyday mom tennis coach uh she had had severe loss during katrina and she started something called saint paul's homecoming and years later was one of the most impactful women and mothers in the city of new orleans rebuilding the city over sixty thousand homes wow. so um i connected with her on a very deep level and i think when you're in a situation like that and you're open to that yeah you connect without all the noise, with all the little idle chit-chat. You connect on a soul level. And that's where we did. And she ended up being the first chapter in my book about a mom that had had severe loss and someone I connected with and and we worked together. Um, And I continued that journey along the way and met several moms. And and then in 2008, I became one of those moms. Hmm. Uh, What I feared most, happened. I guess what you fear most, you know, sometimes happens. And my fear was to leave my children like my own mom did. And Mm -hmm. it was, I was, I would diagnose myself as a hypochondriac. I thought every time something was happening, I was dying. But then all of a sudden in 2008, I was diagnosed with cancer and uh, it was a very, very aggressive, severe form of of breast cancer. And, uh, and, and to top everything else off, um, I I was diagnosed at this time of year, 13 years ago, and it was in April, and then scheduled for a double mastectomy uh, the day before Mother's Day, so a few weeks later, and when I came out of chemotherapy, I was to start, um, sorry, when I came out of the mastectomy, I was supposed to start chemotherapy in two weeks after that, and the night before my first chemo, round of chemo, my middle son, who was seven at the time, was acting very strangely, and I was very intent on getting him into the doctor before I started chemo. So I took him to the doctor and because I was in diagnostics, I said, hey, just check check his blood sugar. He's been acting very strange. And, and within five minutes, they had him rushed to the Phoenix Children's Hospital wow. diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. And he nearly died of ketosis. So I, here I was, I was, you know, starting chemotherapy, just been through major surgery. I was the breadwinner at home, working and traveling every week. I had two other kids, and now I had to teach a seven-year-old to be insulin dependent, which really means for people that don't know, type 1 diabetes is not a, a wellness issue. It's a, your pancreas has right. died from a virus usually. Right. And so so a seven-year-old had to have you know up to eight shots a day just to put a potato chip in his mouth. So I tell the story that you know, two weeks after all of this, well, I couldn't go to the hospital either. I, um, my white counts were too low. So my husband at the time was taking care of him in the hospital, but we came home. I was in a year of chemo because it was such an aggressive cancer. And my best friend flew down from Portland, Oregon, and she was watching the kids while I was sleeping and recovering from chemo. And one day she comes running in with this little seven-year-old in her arm saying, he just, he's got low blood sugar and he's going into ketosis. And you know, I was sick and vomiting in bed, and here I've got this child on my bed, and I've got to get sugar in him. And I looked around, and I was just like, you know, this is something I don't know if I'm going to be able to recover from. Wow. So that's that's kind of part of the story.
2: Yeah. Wow, Michelle. As, you know, as I listened to you and I kind of replay back all the different segments of the, you know, some of the the pain points that you experienced, the trauma that you experienced. Um it's so apparent why you are passionate about, you know, stepping in and helping moms and helping children grieve um, in a -hmm. proper way. You know, you, you noted that there was this long journey of grief that, that happened after, you know, finding your mom. um, And, and that there were these, these layers of loss that took place. You know, your first loss was losing your mom. Your second loss was moving away from your family and then having to sort through, well, when you're that young, you don't even have a framework. You don't have language to to say, okay, this is grief. I need to now take step X, Y, and Z. And so many people wind up years later realizing the same thing that you realized their body begins to keep the score. It manifests, you know, in something, anxiety, depression, and you start going, wait a minute, what's happening right here. As you kind of take a look at that, what would you say? You know, if you're sitting down with somebody, And they, they, they have a child who's just experienced a significant loss. How would you instruct them or instruct the child to begin that process early? Were there some things that you learned in some of that healing journey that now you can retroactively go back and say, you know, this is really what if, if a child experiences a tremendous loss, the way that I did, this is what we would, this, this is what I would advise them doing, you know, almost from the outset because we've got listeners who, I mean, in my story, you know, I lost my wife and my child is 15 months old. And so immediately we're trying to figure out how do we help? I mean, is he grieving? I mean, is there some kind of a, like what you said earlier, there's this subconscious connection to, to mom as well. So is this behavior right here, a trauma thing? Is it this behavior here, just a child thing? Is it, you know, so we're all kind of grappling with this, not knowing how to make sense of, the, tra- the post traumatic season of a child. What would you say?
3: I think it's an excellent question. My sister was 18 months at the time and she has really no memories of it. But I will tell you, when she, I gave her a first advanced copy of the book and um, she read it and she couldn't, she called me and she goes, <laughs> she's not an overly emotional person. I mean, she's just normal. Yeah. But she called me and said, I haven't been out of bed since I started reading your book. And um, it has hit me so deeply. And she's always had some physical ailments that you can't quite put a finger on. Mm. And she's starting to think that a lot of that is just misplaced trauma. And Mm. so I guess from my standpoint at five years old, who has the memories And from her standpoint that had this beautiful mother and connection and physical presence, uh, what I say is it is so hugely important to get these kids in with a therapist that understands how feelings manifest in the body. Mm -hmm. Because when I um, do meditations or, you know, I did some hypnotherapy too, I, I could find all kinds of places in my body in those deep meditations that were just holding on clenching. Yeah. And I think what we do as children when we don't have any other tools is these overwhelming emotions come in. I always described mine as, and, and I, a lot of people haven't seen this movie, but there's a movie called the Fisher King with Robin mm. Williams.
0: Yeah.
3: And it's, he describes pain. Well, he actualizes pain as this vision of a horse, and the knight on the horse in bur- burning fire, mm. and it's coming towards you and he keeps running from it. And that's how, when I saw that movie twenty some, five years ago, it resonated so much with me that this overwhelming sense of pain, almost that you can't step into it, you're running away from it, you're cringing from it. If someone can take you through a successive approximation or baby steps towards that pain mm. and feel it in your body, it will release on its own versus cringing against it. Right, right. But I think it's so important as children to do that because I didn't learn to do it until my 20s. And I still struggle with it. But yeah. uh, I had a really wonderful therapist to help me with that.
2: Yeah. It's kind of interesting as you're talking. I love the, the idea of re- releasing the pain, but you have to apply pressure to release that pain. You know, it's it's yeah. similar to like a deep tissue massage. If you've ever had one in the physical realm, there's this yeah. like pressure, this deep pressure that has to be applied and a deep tissue massage therapist is going to apply it and stay on it until that muscle finally releases and does its, you know, that's right. it resolves itself there. And that's exactly what a, a, a good therapist is going to do with our emotions, you know? And so often we yeah. try to run away from these emotions. We try to numb them or, or just, you know, bury them or cope with them. But one of the things we say all the time is, "A feeling buried never dies." A feeling buried never dies.
3: I know that. <laughs> it's feelings buried ne- uh, never never die. They they live in your body and in your dreams. I mean, I used to keep track of my dreams, and they really, would because my my conscious self would have a hard time looking at them. They would manifest in my dreams, and mm. uh, you'd start writing those down, and little bit by little bit. You, you little memories would come. It's amazing. It's amazing, really. Once you start doing the practice, what comes up? You think there's no way. I and then a memory comes. You're like, oh my gosh, I haven't right. thought of that in fifteen years.
0: Right.
2: Because you know, physiologically, your and psychologically, your mind is trying to survive, and so it buries some of these things uh, subconsciously it's in fight or flight mode. So it's trying to do that. And then you get in a safe, a safe zone. And all of a sudden these things start coming up and you're like, Whoa, what is happening right now? You know, I was teaching a workshop a few weeks ago and I had a guy come up and tell me that a similar story that he was playing Madden with his dad and, uh, you know, a video game and his dad Mm -hmm. drops, drops dead right there. Heart attack. Mm. And he asked me this question and I'm curious how you would answer this question because You know, I've, you know, similarly walked in to find my wife. And so the question that gets asked to me often is how do I get rid of those images of of that moment right there, those traumatic images that kind of haunt me? I'm sure that you had to begin wrestling with that too, as well. How would you, if you were sitting here talking with this guy, what would you, what would you say to him?
3: I think it's a great question. Um, One of the things my my family said to me years later was that i when I, as a five year old I kept asking everybody why my mom was making choking noises mm. now i don 't remember that at all, but I asked that question and you know come to find out that was the death rattle that people hear mm. um, so i 'm sure that that sound has been buried, but I do see her and I see her in her open coffin and i don 't know that I would say you can get rid of those." Mm. But you could take the power out of them. That's good. Because if you try to run away from the memories, it gives them more power. But if you just, re- if you, like I said before, if you visit those memories with little baby steps and just sit with it for a few minutes. And like with my mom's funeral, with open casket. And I remember being there and having my grandmothers, one of my grandmothers collapsed. It's Just traumatic. Mm. You know? Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Um, wow. So every time now I go and my grandmother is, has passed, at this point, but um, when I go in and I, I've looked at that reel so many times, I just remember her collapsing. And so the more I've looked at it, the less power it has over yeah. me. But I don't think we can get rid of those memories. Yep. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I'm not a psychologist, but you know, it's, it's still there. And writing about it and talking about it on these podcasts because I always say hey, you know my mom just she just she just pr- pretty much dropped dead in front of me and someone wants to kind of sugarcoat that. you you mean she died and laid down I was like no she dropped dead in front mm-hmm. of me and I think it's important to just to state say it, it or, or feel it the way it was right. yeah
2: right yeah. and that's you're, you bring bring up such a great point that the more I'm sure the more you talk about it, the easier it gets to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't kind of take your breath away the yeah, way it maybe sure. used to, or the more you write about it, the yeah. easier it comes to write about it. Um, I, I experienced the same exact thing. And this is just conventional cognitive behavioral therapy. We're just not doing it in a, mm-hmm. a counseling setting. We're doing <laughs> it with other people on a podcast yeah. or on a stage speaking yeah. or writing about it in a blog or something. And, this is why the just processing those things can be so healing. I love that you said that too, Michelle. That you can't r- get rid of them because I don't think you can either. And my experience no. has been that I, I don't. I still have those memories, but you're right they they don't have power over and, over me anymore, um, because yeah. I made a decided decision to go back to that spot and to. To spend some time there where, you know, where I found her and to really let those emotions rush over me so that it wouldn't hold power over me anymore. And, you know, I think that's yes. what you're saying too, is just stepping back into it, leaning into those
3: places. Yeah. Leaning into it. And and if you don't want to visit the place, I mean, I visit my mom's uh, grave site and mm-hmm. talking about it, reviewing it. And if you, you know, a lot of us aren't writers, but you, know, you can you get a journal and write about it and write about the dream. Yeah. I think
2: that's really powerful. Yeah. Pain is unavoidable. And yet the primary place I see people get stuck in their pain journey is that they try to avoid addressing it altogether. Recovery starts the moment we choose to take that first step toward wholeness and we lean into the painful emotions. While we believe we have so much to offer as a ministry to help you in your recovery journey, we know there is one area that you need that we don't directly provide, and that is traditional counseling and therapy services. That's why we partner with Faithful Counseling. They are an online worldwide organization that provides virtual counseling from wherever you are. They have licensed therapists who are certified by their state's board to provide traditional mental health counseling from a Christian perspective. You can receive the help you need quickly when you sign up because they match you with a counselor in 24 hours or less. Then you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. And if your counselor you are matched with isn't a good fit for you, you're able to switch at any time to find someone who better fits your needs. To be clear, faithful counseling is not a crisis line. But it can be an incredible resource in your healing journey. It costs $65 per week and financial aid is available to those who qualify, which you can apply for during the sign-up process. To learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothingiswasted. If you sign up through that link only, you will receive 10% off your first month of counseling for being a part of the Nothing Is Wasted community. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash nothingiswasted. And now back to our interview. One of the things that you that I, it it was you mentioned it, I don't even know if you mentioned it but you said that you had this this fear that your that your children were going to lose you as well and then this fear was almost confirmed in this cancer diagnosis and uh, so I'm it's still a little bit theoretical but I I have this kind of theory that a lot of us kind of find ourselves in that full circle moment. Where we're confronted with that fear, that trauma, again in just in a different generation or in a different setting or in a different, and you know I liken it to the the children of Israel wandering around in the desert, you know in some ways getting re-confronted by some of those same, uh, in some ways tests, you know, or in some ways like faith steps, getting confronted by those. Mm So as you said that, I just drew a big circle right here, but I think God teaches us some things in those moments where we find ourselves confronted by it. I wonder if you noted anything that God was really speaking to you about and teaching you when you were confronted with that fear and and then, you know, and that diagnosis and the reality of that staring you in the face.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I think, you know, with my mom's death, I also became very much a... Yeah, I was probably born this way too, a little bit of a control freak, type Mm -hmm. A personality. And so I was really brought up to control outcomes that I could, right? So Mm -hmm. I I remember my prayers would say, don't ever let me die, you know, don't let me die young, don't (laughs) let me die young. And uh, so when I was diagnosed, it was. it was, you know, it really, the diagnosis unfolded first. It was like, well, it's, it's in the breast. You're going to be okay. Then it was stage one. Then it was okay. Well, now we're finding it out, you know uh, where it's uh, grade three and now it's her two pot. It just unfolded unfolded. So yeah. it was over a couple of weeks that I got this horrible diagnosis. And um, it, by the end of it, I was so panicked. And I, I remember I got three opinions and of course, I went with the two doctors that gave me the better, you know, outcome. Yeah. And the, the one doctor was so amazing with me. His name was Doctor Rich, Richard Robert Livingston in um, Tucson, Arizona. He's part of the University of Arizona Teaching Hospital. Mm. And um, I would go, honest to God, I would go and say, "What are my chances of living? What are my chance?" You know, every single time I wanted a percentage. <laughs> and um, and he would tell me he was so kind. He was, he was so over the top kind and did more than probably oncologists are even supposed to say, mm-hmm. you know, but then I would go home and I would email him again. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and he gave me his personal email and I just could never <laughs> just put it down to, well, you know, God's in charge here. Mm-hmm. So I, rem- I started this prayer journey. Um, I was raised, uh, I was raised Catholic Christian, um, but you know, during this time, I would say the Catholicism was a practice, but the spirituality the Christianity was what came out in grace so yeah. um I would get up and pray every day to, to uh and to the Holy Spirit to God to Jesus I mean, to whoever would listen mm-hmm. the saints um and uh and and I think when you have nothing else you can do there's nothing else you can do. You have cancer. You, you can get treatment and then you have to sit and wait was the biggest lesson of my life. Mm. And I remember sitting on MRI tables and chemotherapy drips and just like looking for something tangible, anything, a word, someone, please tell me I'm going to be okay. Yeah. But no one can do that. And so I, it was an exercise of every day, praying, let go, praying, let go. And I think personally, it doesn't happen overnight. I think it's a practice. Yeah. And I only in retrospect, looking backwards, do I see myself in, did I see myself change over those three years? Hmm. I was, um, you know, I, I was in treatment for a year in chemo and surgeries, and the next two years, I was in a study at U of A. And so you, know, the first year was horrifying, the second year was horrifying because every pain, you know, a headache would come out --Oh, it's in my brain now. It's Mm. in my back now. And I would drive to the MRI place and, you know, I would pray all the way there looking. And the more you let go, the more God speaks to you. Mm. So if you're trying to control the outcome, I don't, then you're not listening. Yeah. It's your agenda. But the more you pray and let go, I would get signs. And I'll never forget one time I had a horrible backache horrible. And it was probably because I was sitting around worrying and clenching all the time, but I had a horrible backache. I was convinced the cancer had moved into my bones. So they ordered an MRI and I went over to uh, the imaging place and the whole way I was praying, 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 praying. And I was, you know, I was so panicked that I got onto the MRI table and I just fell apart. I just started crying right there. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't take this anymore. It's so stressful. And, you know, when you go and get an imaging, those people cannot tell you what's going on. You have, right. They have to send it to your doctor, and then you have to wait for a couple of days to get right. anything back, which is horrifying.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, but I had prayed all the way over there, and I was just at my wit's end. And uh, I was laying on the table, and afterwards, this amazing young man, who couldn't have been more than 25, 30 years old, leaned down into my ear and whispered. He goes, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but you're okay. And, uh, Mm. so he went against all rules and told me that the MRI was great. And that was just, I got, I I got one of those a week, pray and let go, pray and let go. Mm. And God would come and talk to me to the point by the end of it, I was hearing God speak to me saying, Michelle, you're never going to have to deal with cancer again. Mm. You're never going to have to deal with cancer again. I remember because no one knew. And with the type of cancer I had, you had to survive three years before you could really start being in the statistics. So with it being so aggressive, they always said, if it's going to come back, it will come in three years. Well, three Mm -hmm. years is a long time to look around your body for something to happen. But the exercise of three years was a journey of faith for me. And I came Mm -hmm. out the other side thinking, wow, that was a great lesson. (laughs) I mean, I developed all kinds of prayer rituals and, and, uh, and just looking for the way God was speaking to me.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, what a great lesson for all of us, whether or not, we've experienced, you know, a cancer diagnosis or we're walking through chemo treatments or we're, you know, waiting for MRI results the fact that we're not in control i think that that's one of the lessons that pain teaches us is that there there are lots yeah. of things that we can control in this life and we have agency in so much of our situations but we always are going to be confronted by something that we just we're out of control and then the question comes down to what do we, what do we do? Do we keep grasping for control, which can lead us to these places of anxious, major anxiety. And, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or do we, um, do we just, do we trust, you know?
0: And oof, <sighs> wow. It's a
3: tough one. It's, it's a tough one. And it's not a journey for the faint of heart. Yeah. Let me tell you because yeah. I was faint of heart and I just remember you know, laying in the fetal position many times. Mm. Just, I mean, there's just nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do, right? right. I mean, so what else do you do? There's nothing else yeah. to do.
2: Wow. Now, you were experiencing much of this simultaneous to your your son getting his diagnosis as yeah. well, right? Those timelines those mm-hmm. those crossed over pretty pretty. Within a couple
3: weeks, yeah, yeah
2: exactly. Mm-hmm. So, what was that like walking through both of those? I mean, here you are, you know. Most people, if they receive a cancer diagnosis and they're going through chemotherapy treatment, the message to them is, okay, do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself, right? Let's take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then here you're confronted as well with, I've got to take care of my baby boy, right? I mean, this is, yeah. so how did you sort through all of that?
3: <laughs> and When you say it back like that, it's hard. You know, I was lucky enough to take a year off. And so I was at home um, and, you know, he was at home with me. And the other thing that God put into my life is this amazing, amazing school nurse. Mm -hmm. Her name is Joan Servan. And she, you know, we had to just, we really had to collaborate with her to get him back at school because you know, diabetes is just not a exact science. You know, right. you, they eat food, you calculate carbs, and you put in a certain amount of insulin. And many times, especially when they're getting started, you overcorrect or you undercorrect, right. and it just causes problems all throughout the day. Right. Mm. Yeah, so I was just, you know, I was living on a pin cushion mm. for three years, really. I was just like, okay, well, here's another one. Here's another one. And not to mention that, you know when you're going through all that, you don't have the energy or space for anything else. I remember looking in my my office and having bills stacked up this high, not because I couldn't pay them because I was still working, mm-hmm. but because I couldn't even deal with making a phone call. Yeah, you know yeah. um, it was just it was too much, all of it was too much and But I had a lot of people praying for me, and honestly that I'm just going to go back to that was the only Crutch I had the only crutch because and family I had family come in and help quite a bit they were they were wonderful friends, but still no one can can bear the emotional emotional burden with you yeah. nobody and so thats i mean you can talk to a friend all day long and they can be wonderful, and I have wonderful friends, but nobody and I mean nobody like god and and talking to the Holy Spirit brings immediate comfort
2: yeah, it's interesting you know we find ourselves in these seasons where it's like it is way more than what we can handle. It is way more, it's oh, completely overwhelming. And it's just, we find ourselves in these places of desperation where we have to reach out even. Yeah. And those are those moments where even people who don't believe in God, they're finding themselves going, all right, if you're there, if you exist, would you please <laughs> show yourself? Cause I need you. I need you in this. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. there's. I'm sure there's a mom who's listening to this that would say, wow, Michelle, you just described the circumstance I'm in right now, maybe it's not a diagnosis of cancer, juvenile diabetes, but it's something else. And I feel just, I've got that stack of bills. I've got these, the laundry pile and I've got these things. I just feel overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. Do you have any suggestions on where to
3: start? Yeah. That's that's another great question. Um, I think you know reaching out first to and being extremely vulnerable to someone that can come in and help you for a little bit um i hear a lot of moms and people and moms that come to mother's grace charity describe it like i did where they're laying in the fetal position like that what am i going to do tomorrow like i either can't pay a bill i I don't have the energy to pay, pay a bill i um I can't. I don't think I'm going to be able to get up tomorrow and deal with this. I'm overwhelmed. I just heard this twice in the last 24 hours from two very dear friends that are dealing with their own children's crises, like really, really intense crises. It happens every day. Um, my advice would be to get into prayer. Whether I don't care, you know, how you pray, um, a meditation of sort, and just open the Bible. Mm. Psalms is a great place to go. Proverbs is a a great place to go. Um, If you're not a Bible person, you can Google prayers these days, you know, that will just get you centered. And I just say, pray it over and over and over. And for me being, you know, raised Catholic, I I pray the rosary a lot and I just hold the beads and you can hold, you can get prayer beads of any faith Mm -hmm. and just holding them and going through the meditation of it. Because Saying it once, saying it twice is not enough. You have to get into a meditation where you almost feel this buzz of someone's there with me. And you feel like a little bit of a, I call it like a, a prayer buzz. You can feel your feet and your hands kind of buzzing a little bit. And you can feel a presence within your body, which is just love, right? And you feel like you're being held just for a minute and then let go and ask God to guide you and to look for signs. I mean, I was really big on signs. Um, I'll I'll never forget one day I was going to see the pathologist and for, we had a, a forum of people that were helping me through treatment and I had to go meet with them. And, um, I was going to the exact, exact place I was diagnosed. And again, I was just crying and sobbing and like, Oh God, I don't want to die. And I drove over there, and I was praying the whole way. I was like, God, I need you to talk to me. And when I pulled up, there was construction all around the site, mm. all around the site. And in back of the site was a cemetery. Mm. And there was a huge neon sign flashing as I drove in. It says, no access to cemetery. And I was like, well, God, okay, you're telling me I'm not going to die right now. Yeah. So, um, thank you for that message. And I'm going to go in with some, some uh, courage that you just helped me with. Because alone, we, we can't summon up the same kind of courage right. we can with God's help. So I went in and I felt a lot better. So pray, 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 pray over and over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. and then let go and look around. Mm. This would be my advice.
2: Mm. That's great. You know, there again. I'll I kind of go back to the question. There are a lot of moms who are listening to this, a lot of parents in general who are listening to this, moms and dads alike, grandparents, and they um, mm-hmm. they're trying to help their children uh, walk through you know a, a a really difficult, overwhelming time. They and they're trying mm-hmm. to you know trying to help them heal, trying to help them recover from whatever major life transition has just fought, befallen their life. Um, mm-hmm. what would you suggest, what are some key principles on how to hold space to help a, a, a young child to begin to grapple with grief, to grapple with trauma? Um, you know, cause it's hard, it's hard. I mean, it, it, it's definitely, you have to, there's space that you have to hold. I mean, it is yeah. not an easy thing cause uh, there's going to be some reactions that it, 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 again, you question a lot, is this normal childhood behavior? Is this just, you know, Mm -hmm. them being a four-year-old or is this, is this some kind of manifestation of trauma? And so there's a lot of, uh, intuiting and discerning within that. What what would you say? How, some, any principles, guiding principles to help with that?
3: So there's a question I always ask, and I even ask adults and you can ask this to a child too. You can say, how is your heart feeling today? Mm. When you think of this, is your heart light? Is it medium or is it heavy? That's a great and, question. Wow. You know, for older kids, sometimes it's, how is your soul feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, I ask adults that all the time. Is your soul light today? But with your with children, they, they uh, think of love and unconditional love with their heart. Mm-hmm. And so you can explain that to them and just say some of your feelings are held in your heart and the love that you have for your family is held in your heart. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times with kids, even my own children, you say, how's your heart feeling today? Can you tell me about it? Can you use some words to tell me? And even with boys, like, um, you know, I went through a very painful divorce and Mm. I'll ask my boys, you know, how are you feeling about this? Fine, 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 fine. You know, and it's really getting them into (laughs) getting them into a space of where they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. A lot of times for my kids, it's like, you know, Going out to eat or mm-hmm. being in the car—it it has to come from them because pushing a boy, especially at those ages, is not right. going to work. But when they when they are just bringing up a couple words, just will say, "Can you speak to me about how your heart feels?" And I think that really helps them kind of conceptualize where my feelings are, and I just want them to use feeling words because you've got to get them talking about, "Well, I feel frustrated, or I feel pain, or I mm-hmm. feel sadness, or I feel anger," and those those words help get to the feelings.
0: Yeah.
2: That's great. That's so good. So where do things stand today? You know, how are things with, I mean, they told you they gave you a three-year mark and (laughs) where, where do things stand with, with the cancer diagnosis? Where do things stand with your son?
3: Yeah. So um, I've, uh, last week was a 13 year anniversary from cancer. Wow. And so, you know, I don't really think about it anymore. I used to think about it every second of every day.
0: Yeah, I imagine. Now
3: I rarely think about it. Um, And I just don't think I'll ever have to deal with it again. I just Mm. believe God's words. Uh, My son is great. He's a uh, sophomore at the University of Arizona and doing great, Uh, thriving. And um, my other two are thriving as well. One uh, graduated from college last year and the other one's a junior in high school. And um, the charity is doing great. We started with $2,000 from a garage sale, and now <laughs> we're a multi million dollar charity that helps wow. thousands of women every year. Um, so everything's good, That's you know, amazing. as good as it can be.
2: What specifically, mm-hmm. what kinds of things, you know, does the charity specifically help women with um, the tangible yeah, things?
3: Yeah, good question. So um, we have done everything from counseling sessions for children mm-hmm. to, mortgage to rent assistance to meals to you know physician bills we have a gift card program for women that are uh, having to camp out at the hospital with their kiddos um so that you know we can provide meals but we can also give gift cards for gas and medication Mm -hmm. and things like that we've paid utility bills we've paid travel bills for for kids kiddos that are having to fly to get treatment um Basically, our mission is to help moms in an acute situation. So if something acute has happened, not chronic, because we feel like there's other aid for chronic situations, right. but something acute where mom is thrown off her game and can't work for a bit, yeah. we'll come in and support them for a month or two until they can get back on their feet.
2: Wow. That's amazing. What an incredible ministry. So cool. So cool. Well, you've, you know, you've got this book that you have released, A Mother's Grace. mm mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm my last question before we close this conversation is what, what's your hope for this book? What is your hope for the message that you're carrying
3: right now? So the book, um, really illustrates my life and my Mm -hmm. journey of pain and and faith, but also 10 other women that went through tragic situations from Mm -hmm. loss of a child to a natural disaster, hurricane Katrina to, um, um, there's a mom that lost her daughter in the Parkland shootings. um, there's moms that have lost their children to addiction and suicide. Mm. Um, And and it's the story of their pain journey, what that looked like and how they rose out of the ashes with some faith and some taking that experience to the masses and helping other people. And I think the people that have read the book say, that's exactly what you just said is exactly what it's helpful for is if you're in a really painful situation, then you will not feel alone and you'll see regular everyday moms that have just come out the other side even more beautifully. I mean, there's some really severe loss here. I mean, it's, it, it's not for the faint of heart right. again, but um, and the back of the book talks about a lot of different tools for recovery and, and that type of thing.
2: Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool.
3: So my hope for the book is that it, it touches women and moms. Wow. That's it.
2: Well, I think that's so beautiful too, because you're taking these stories of these, we call them unsung heroes, right? It's not the yeah. prolific writer that you know, has this national platform and tons of Instagram followers necessarily. It's a story of an everyday mom who's gone through some really yes. difficult things and, um, and, and it encourages all, you know, all of us, but especially moms to say, hey, if, they, if God can get them through that, he can get me through what, what I'm going through right now. And, um, that's so cool, Michelle. I want to make sure everybody, uh, goes and picks up a copy of a mother's grace. We're going to put that on our podcast page and our show notes for you to easily reference it. And, uh, Michelle, where can we follow what you're doing? Where can we follow? Uh, you have a website, Instagram, Facebook, what, yeah. where are you at?
3: So our Facebook page is mother's grace, just those two words. And, uh, our website is mothers grace.org.
2: Awesome. Awesome. We'll also link that stuff to the show notes, but Michelle, thank you so much. Your story is truly one of, of going from these seasons of pain and and launching that into and leveraging that into purpose. And so thank you for what you're doing for all of these women, um, across the country, uh, through mother's grace. And, and just thank you for living your life out, um, out of your pain. That's so, so amazing. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Davey. Thanks for having me.
2: I thought that was just a incredible conversation. Um, so powerful. You know, one of the things that as she was talking, I really um, it, it reminded me of a conversation that I had with a with a a, a fellow young widower. Uh, this guy, he you know, heard of our story, reached out to me. Actually, lives in Indianapolis, and um, we went out to coffee. And we sat at coffee, and and he asked me. He said, "You know, Davey, I'd, I'm trying to figure out how to get the." the last memories of my, my wife. And, and what he meant by that is, you know, he was, they were in a hot, the hospital and it was a long battle with cancer. And mm. he actually watched her slip away, you know, watched, watched mm. her take her last breaths. And obviously, you know, a family member who's suffering with cancer and yeah. you're know, watching, you know, their, their body and their, it seems like their <sighs> oh, spirit just deteriorates, just a terrible yeah. journey. And he yeah. goes, I, I don't know how to get rid of these memories when I, you know, lay down at night. This is what I think of. Mm. And when I, I'll wake up in like cold sweats and I just remember this. Wow. And I don't want these to be the last memories of my, of my wife. How do you do this? And mm. so he asked me this because obviously I've got some very traumatic last memories of Amanda as well.
1: Right. And
2: right. so his question was very pointedly, how do I get rid of these memories? And, uh, hmm. And that's a question I think a lot of people have, you know, really just trauma in general. You know, they will experience triggers that will remind us of this traumatic event. And what it does is it sends us back into that survival mode. You know, Mm. biologically what's happening is that your prefrontal cortex, which is your rational reasoning side of your brain, it shuts down when you get triggered. And all of a sudden your Mm. limbic system begins to take over and survival mode happens even if you are in a safe season. So you're wow. responding out of trauma, even though you're, you're safe. So you fight, flight, yeah. you freeze. That's yeah. the response that we all know. And, 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 and so he's going, how do I get rid of these? Cause I don't want my response to happen the way it is. I don't want to have these yeah. memories. And I told him, I said, I don't, th- I don't think that's the right fight. Cause I don't hmm. believe you're ever going to get rid of those memories. The question is, is, is how do I not let these memories have power over me?
1: Wow. Wow. There's
2: a difference, right? Hmm. Um, these memories mark us they''re they're, they're yeah, embedded they in us, but what what yeah. he really wants is he doesn't want these memories to cause him to go into such a visceral visceral reaction.
1: Yeah
2: um, And so you know this is why it's imperative for us to actually lean into these memories rather than avoid these memories, because the only way to begin to file these memories away properly. The only way for us to begin to um, start to gain power or agency over these memories yes. is to is to lean into as as we talk oh. about a lot, the, the art of yeah. lament, the art mm-hmm. of revisiting these moments mm-hmm. of cognitive behavioral therapy where we talk about these things, where we write yep. about them, where we speak them yep. out loud, and we begin to give yep. language to them because when we begin to give language to them and we begin to tell the story. Through the perspective of a kingdom, you know perspective, that's
1: then we yeah. now
2: now these things won't have power over us. We get to kind of take the take control of the pen, right? Through the power of the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, and we get mm-hmm. to write the story mm-hmm. on, yeah. on how this how this is. And so, um, that's what I found with this guy. Is he was avoiding all of these things, and he was like, "How do I get rid of them?" They just keep coming back, keep coming back. And I'm like, "Well, you're avoiding them. You can't avoid them. Uh, you you have to actually
1: like." Run towards them, yeah, Yeah. which is a scary thing to do. I know for me, some of my past trauma that we've talked about on the show from sexual assault, I've done some work with therapists or with a prayer partner um, to... Really, do that exercise, like, okay, Jesus, where were you when this mm. was happening right. it for me, it helped to have someone guiding me through that process, someone yeah. I trusted someone I felt safe with because i I think to do that on your own could feel very vulnerable and oh, very yeah. scary, but at least initially to have someone walk you through that, and that's a very typical thing that happens in um, you know prayer ministry right. or that happens in some type of counseling where you'll you'll even in spiritual direction that when you feel ready yeah. someone will guide you in a prayer time of god where were you jesus where were you when this happened yeah and the beautiful thing is is jesus is always there yeah and i i mean that's the incredible thing we'll i've never in been moment. in a prayer session with somebody where they yeah. were like oh i don't know where jesus is they're always like oh jesus is there wow. right? right he's right here or this i mean and and that's, again, I know we've talked about this on the show before, but that's the incredible thing about our God is sometimes these horrible things do happen. But we do have that kingdom perspective to know that Jesus was there, Jesus is there, Jesus will be there, and Jesus is transforming these experiences in ways that we are beyond even our imagination and actually that have love in them. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. And when we look at it through a kingdom perspective, especially things like, I mean, think about this. Think about death, okay? If we look at death, through the perspective of this of this world, it's way different than looking at it through the perspective of God's world of His kingdom. Yeah, right? good in point, fact Yeah, Scripture tells us that it precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of His saints.
1: Hmm.
2: And that does that matter how how they passed away? Does it matter how horrific it was, how tragic it was? No. It literally just blanket statement says precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of His saints. So if you're in Christ, death is is actually a precious thing. Why? Because as Timothy Keller says, death is not a departure, it's an arrival. Amen. Right? Death is not like yep. leaving the party. It's like oh now yeah. no it's actually arriving at the, the the most prolific party there is, right? That's not it's not, right. it's not yeah. this severing or this tearing or this ripping. It is a mending. It is it mm. is a, a healing that is happening. It's a full mm. restoration that's taking place. So if we can begin to shift our perspective with that and align it with the kingdom then it good does baby. change the way that we that we write these things in our in our narrative, the way that that, yes. we, that we view these things and the way we experience mm-hmm. these things and and especially when we see that Jesus is present through the whole process, um, you know it just really brings a lot of peace to our heart
1: yeah yeah that's good that's so. such a good word one of the things that we 're passionate about here at Nothing Is Wasted is just that. You experiencing Jesus in your pain. You seeing your pain from that kingdom perspective. And because of that, we have provided a whole lot of resources for you. If you go to nothingiswasted.com, you can find out about our Pain to Purpose course. We have that for churches, and we have it for individuals as well. Mm -hmm. You can find out about and join one of our community groups. We have different community groups for people walking through different pain points. So whatever it is your specific story is, you can join a group of people with that same story who are are doing the good work of finding God in their pain. Or if you want to make a bigger just investment in your own journey, you could even hire a certified guide who would walk you through the Pain to Purpose course, walk you on a journey to find hope in the middle of your heartache. Right.
2: Yeah, we want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. You can go and listen to his music anywhere where you can download or stream music. And uh, we'd like to invite you to follow us on on Instagram at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries is the ministries handle. Uh, we do a lot of giveaways there. Virtually every week, we're giving away some kind of book or book bundle. That a lot of them, a lot of times they correlate with uh, you know what's going on um, here as far as the podcast, uh, the folks that we're interviewing on the podcast. And you can also follow me at Davey Blackburn and follow Aubrey at OBSAMP. Uh, We just released this past week the Pain to Purpose Devotional. Uh, so I hope you picked up your copy, and I also want to just uh, you know really reemphasize that this is a fantastic resource to give other people who are going through some difficult times. And so go ahead and buy like a like a bundle of these so that you can have them on hand to be able to give to somebody when something you know takes place, or you, you're like, oh, I need to give this to person. This person who's going through a rough time. If you buy seven or more, we give you a lifetime access to the Pain to Purpose course for free. So that bundle is available there for you. Um, next week we start a series on singleness which is something we have not done before we have not we have not done but we've been wanting
1: to do right been, this yes, is exciting i'm
2: super excited about this i always love our series one because they're very shareable, right? You people, someone in your life, you can say, Hey, listen to this whole series. And it's a Mm -hmm. collection of stories and podcast episodes that will really, they correlate with that topic. And it's, um, and and we try to hit every angle that we can. And so it's going to be a really great series. You'll want to make sure that you come back next week as we launch that with an interview with Christopher Yuan. And oh my goodness. Wow! This
1: one is a powerful one. You are going to love it. You are not going to want to miss it. Yes. You are going to want to share it, like Davey said. So let's go ahead and take a listen to part of Davey's conversation with Christopher Yuan.
4: So I began experimenting with drugs. I actually also began selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor in dental school mm. Well, this whole time, my, my parents had no clue. And I, and I thought I could balance this being a, a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. Wow. So I'm like, I I decided to just move further south to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly did what I just knew how to do best, which was have fun, party. I began not just selling drugs, but supplying drugs to dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day, because according to the world, I had it all. Mm. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. i had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because Mm. in my world, I had become God.